Florida Governor Ron DeSantis reportedly will make it official tomorrow that he will run for president in 2024. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, how a fourth grade teacher in Uvalde, Texas, will remember those killed in the mass shooting there one year ago tomorrow. I just want them to be honored and in a positive light and not remembered just for being like a mass shooting victim. Also this hour, a new poll suggests many Americans are concerned about the mental fitness of both the Republican and Democratic U.S. presidential candidates, plus long COVID and getting approved for long-term federal disability. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The latest round of debt ceiling talks on Capitol Hill has once again failed to produce an agreement. After a series of stops and starts this week, the two parties remain far apart over the terms for lifting the borrowing limit. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre once again warned about the consequences of a potential default. It would wipe out as many as 8 million jobs, trigger a recession, devastate retirement accounts, increase costs, damage our international reputation. One of the major sticking points in talks is how to cap government spending. Congressman Patrick McHenry, a Republican budget negotiator, says the GOP has a bottom line. They need to come to terms and the White House needs to come to terms with the fact they can't spend more next year than they're spending this year. Without an agreement, the Treasury Department warns that the U.S. could default on its debt by as early as June 1st. All of the major indices are down on Wall Street today as investors wait for news about the debt ceiling talks out of Washington. As NPR's David Gura reports, they were hoping for more signs of progress on the discussions. Wall Street seemed content with how President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy characterized their most recent meeting at the White House as productive, but some of that optimism has faded. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's latest warning that there is the potential the U.S. may be unable to pay its bills as soon as June 1st is making investors increasingly anxious. And stocks started to slide after McCarthy updated his caucus and reporters on negotiations. Lawmakers and the president continue to say a default is not on the table, but without a deal, Wall Street is left to worry. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A powerful typhoon is making its way toward the U.S. territory of Guam and the Mariana Islands. NPR's Rebecca Hersher has more on the Category 4 storm. Typhoon Mawa is now powerful enough to rip roofs off buildings and uproot trees. The storm is also pushing an enormous wave of water in front of it. Devastating storm surge, high enough to sweep away homes, is forecast. Sea level rise from climate change makes such storm surge extra dangerous. The storm gained strength extremely quickly, going from a Category 1 storm to a Category 4 storm in just one day. Abnormally hot water on the surface of the Pacific Ocean helped fuel Mawa's rapid intensification. Climate change is causing ocean temperatures to rise as the world's oceans soak up excess heat trapped by greenhouse gases. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 231 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Hate crimes appear to be spiking in Massachusetts. WBUR's John Bender has more on a new report from the Anti-Defamation League. Federal data show the number of reported hate crimes increased about 30 percent in the state between 2021 and 2022. Peggy Shuker is New England Regional Director for the Anti-Defamation League. She says elected leaders can use legislation to combat harassment in person and online. We can advocate for stronger laws on doxing and for protection of individuals from online hate and harassment. We can hold social media platforms accountable, again, a policy point of view, We can strengthen our hate crime reporting and response. Additionally, Massachusetts saw extremist propaganda at some of the highest rates in the country due to increased activity by white supremacist groups. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. State correction officials are investigating the stabbing of a correction officer at Massachusetts Maximum Security Prison. The Department of Correction says the officer has been released from the hospital where he was treated after being repeatedly stabbed. It happened last night while the officer was trying to break up a fight at the Susie Baranowski Correctional Center, according to the Correction Officers Union. Kevin Flanagan's with the union. He says other officers stepped in to help. Force needed to be used to gain control of the inmates and uh, luckily nobody was severely injured but we did have several officers uh, receive minor injuries. The prisoner who allegedly stabbed the officer has been removed from his housing unit and faces disciplinary action and possible criminal charges. St. John's Prep in Danvers will be back open for classes tomorrow. The boys' Catholic school closed on Tuesday after a large police presence at the school yesterday. Officers officially responded to reports of a school shooter. Those turned out to be fake. But more officers were called to the scene after another officer's gun accidentally went off in a bathroom. No one was hurt. In sports, Celtics have a must-win game in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Heat tonight. Miami leads that series three games to none, and the Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim. Our weather forecast, clear and cool tonight. Temperatures in the upper 40s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by HBO. Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI. Premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on Max. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This week marks the end of the school year in Uvalde, Texas, and tomorrow marks one year since the deadly mass shooting that changed the community forever. A gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School, devastating families and thrusting survivors into grief and uncertainty. I wasn't sure I was going to come back as a teacher. That's Nicole Ogburn, who helped her students escape Robb Elementary through a bullet-shattered window. She knew some of the children who were killed, and she was very close with the teachers killed as well, Irma Garcia and Eva Mireles. She ultimately did decide to return as a teacher at a repurposed school campus, newly dubbed Uvalde Elementary. I spoke with her in her classroom last August, a week before the school year began. My first thing this year, it's really sad, is I usually look for cutesy stuff for my classroom. My first thing was safety stuff for my classroom. I spoke with Nicole Ogburn again today as she reflected on how she, her students, and her colleagues have gotten through this year. Nicole, 
I've been thinking about you and your students a lot over the course of this year. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. It's been a like a roller coaster this year of ups and downs. There's good days and seems like sometimes there's a lot more bad days for myself and my other friends that I teach with and, and some of the kids, not all of the kids, um, but some of them. What's made it hard for some of the kids that are in your classroom? Having to start back up with like the drills, lockdown, secure. We had hazard drills this year. And um, sometimes those kids just, that's a trigger for them. And then of course we did have a couple of actual, not lockdowns luckily, but secure in place because of chases that would happen through town. And those really caught the kids off guard. How did you help people stay calm in those moments? I, it was hard because I was trying to keep myself calm a couple of times, but, you know, just kept reassuring them. We're safer than we've ever been. One of the other things you also told us when we were in your classroom in August was about some of the new items that you'd bought for your classroom, like curtains to block the windows from outside view, a tool to help block the door in case of some sort of an intrusion or danger. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment this year where you felt like, you needed to use those tools. We did uh, have a curtain on the door, the window to the door that comes into my classroom. And I used it a couple of times with the secure drills just because I didn't want the kids to see like something like that kind of made them a little more anxious. But what went through my mind this year a lot was, okay, even though I have these things what can I use to like bear even like more like push up against the door? A lot of that stuff went through my head all year long. Okay, if this happens or if that happens, what what can we do just to maybe give us a little more time if something was to happen? It's now been a year. What is Uvalde like now? How did the shooting and everything that's happened since, how did it change your community? It changed us a lot. Um, I was born and raised here, and I always thought we were a pretty tight-knit community. Then all of a sudden, it just kind of, things happened. And there was lots of controversy in town. And in my mind, I'm like, something positive has to come out of this, something. When you talk about wanting something positive to come from this horrific tragedy, do you have an idea of what that might look like for you? I'm not sure what it looks like. I just think, I mean, like I want the children and I want Evan Irma to be honored in a way that would make them proud. And I just want them to be honored and and remembered for the good things and not remembered just for being like a mass shooting victim. Since the shooting that day, there have unfortunately been countless more at outlet malls, banks, birthday parties, other schools, and it's it's heartbreaking. But how do you handle that? What is it like for you hearing reports of more shootings across this country, more people who lose their lives and have their communities torn apart? It's almost like you relive it every time another one happens. And 
I feel anxious. I feel angry at times. Like, why is this still happening? And that's sad that we can't just go somewhere publicly and be safe because you never know what might happen. I have to imagine that for a lot of teachers and school staff and even kids who went back into schools just like you did, that they spend a lot of time thinking and worrying about a tragedy like this happening to them. What would you say to them, people who fear this kind of violence coming to their community, to their classroom? Um. One of the things I've I've tried to say is we, yes, we need to be cautious about your surroundings and everything around you, but also don't let the fear of something like this happening keep you from, from doing the things that you love to do and that you enjoy to do. Um, the one thing I've constantly told my kids and I even have to tell myself, <laughs> is I can't live in the fear of this happening again because it's going to keep me and my kids from doing things that they love and accomplish things that they should be accomplishing right now in life and not let it hold you back. That's Nicole Ogburn, fourth grade teacher at Uvalde Elementary. Thank you so much for talking to us and take care. Thank you. People affected by long COVID have to endure more than just physical suffering. Many are also hurting economically. They've lost their jobs and now rely on disability checks to survive. And getting long-term disability approved for long COVID can be a major challenge for some patients. For member station KQED in San Francisco, Keith Mizuguchi reports. Chris Pham, who's 35, is at home living with his parents in Arizona. The former head of sales is still feeling the effects of his COVID-19 infection. Pham contracted the virus back in March of 2020, right as the city of San Francisco was shutting down. He thought it would be something that came and went, but his symptoms kept getting worse. I was going to go for a short five-mile run, and after mile one, I can remember really thinking, wow, something is totally wrong with my body. And I broke into a cold sweat. I just couldn't run anymore. Despite his condition, Pham tried to go back to work immediately. I found it almost impossible. I was passing out in the middle of the day after one or, or two meetings. Like so many working-age Americans with long COVID, Pham was forced to take leave from his job. And eventually, his employer let him go. After his short-term disability ran out, he filed a claim for long-term disability benefits. And that's where the problems began. The disability company would often come back and say, it needs review. And this happened every single month. So they would only approve the benefit one month at a time. So I had, I had no certainty on how to plan. You know, I was basically just chasing down my benefits the whole time. His insurer, Guardian, terminated his benefits last year. Guardian did not respond to numerous requests for comment. Consultant Linda Bergthold, who works with employers to develop health care benefit programs, says part of the problem is that insurers don't have a definitive definition of long COVID. 
and there are no treatments that have been approved for long COVID patients. It's very frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for patients, for doctors. And insurance companies will be conservative about it. They will say, we're not paying until we figure this out. While there's still a great deal of uncertainty about long COVID, Dr. David Petrino with Mount Sinai in New York says that shouldn't be an excuse for insurers to end benefits for patients. Petrino is working with thousands of long COVID patients at his recovery clinic. These individuals need to be held accountable for withdrawing support from people who deserve benefits and deserve adequate levels of care. Please let us stop asking sick people to prove to us that they're sick. For Chris Pham, without any benefits coming in and not being able to work, he was forced to move back in with his parents. You know, if I didn't have the support of my family, I'd be out on the streets. And they don't care. Pham's attorney, Cassie springer Ieni, who specializes in disability claims, says his story is not unique. People take loans, and people take loans from family. A lot of my clients wind up selling their house, moving somewhere else. I've had Two clients just in the last year have to give up living in the Bay Area because of their disabilities, because they can't live off of an unreliable source of income. Pham eventually appealed the decision, and after being without benefits for seven months, his appeal was finally granted, meaning his long-term benefits were restored earlier this year. But he's still not satisfied with his experience navigating the insurance system. It's rife with both inconsistencies, but also just really poorly executed and designed. And whether that's on purpose or just how the system is, it'll lead to a lot of people feeling discouraged and not having the resources to get what is rightfully theirs. While Pham feels fortunate, so many others with long COVID across the country are still waiting for their appeals to be heard or resolved and wondering if they'll ever get the help they need. For NPR News, I'm Keith Mizuguchi in San Francisco. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, our Bill of the Month series. Today, we hear about a man who visited the U.S. for his daughter's wedding, and he left with a $42,000 medical bill. It's 18 minutes past four. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a homegrown neighborhood deli featuring handcrafted sandwiches, soups, salads, and local ice cream. Hours at volantefarms.com. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. On Wall Street, major stock indexes finished lower today with the Dow falling more than 200 points. In Massachusetts financial news, the state Senate rejected a proposal that would have authorized online lottery sales in Massachusetts. The House had approved a so-called iLottery plan with House Democrats estimating that it would generate 200 million dollars in revenue. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. It's 20 minutes past four. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage this Thursday through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. 
Ann Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. If you're used to watching television when and how you want, you can do the same thing with your radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. In our forecast, clear and cool tonight, temperatures in the upper 40s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Each month, we investigate someone's medical bill to spotlight gaps in the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor of our partner, KFF Health News, and she's here with our May Bill of the Month. Welcome. Good to be back. All right, so tell us, who are we meeting today? Uh, today, the patient is Jay Comfort, who is an American expatriate living in Switzerland, where he has Swiss health insurance. And by the way, the Swiss healthcare system is widely admired. He traveled back to the U.S. last year for his daughter's wedding and ended up in an American emergency room. Um, his story illustrates the huge difference in international health care prices. And it's a reminder that when people visit the U.S., having good health insurance back home may not be enough to protect you from a pricey American medical bill. Okay, reporter Sarah Jane Tribble spoke with Jay. Jay Comfort was thousands of miles from home, having pizza with his brother and wife in Pennsylvania, when he felt pain in his abdomen. The 66-year-old says he tried to avoid going to the ER, so he went to get some sleep in his hotel room. And about an hour later, I was in excruciating pain, and I tried to gut it out for three hours because, um, you know, the, the insurance situation. Jay's health insurance is from Switzerland. When he finally arrived at the ER, he remembers the hospital staff taking his insurance card. You know, it was just like, you're in. You said you had insurance. We took a copy of your card. We're going to give you the treatment we think you need. He was taken to surgery where doctors removed his inflamed appendix. They also sent tissue for testing to check for cancer. He spent a few hours in a recovery room and was released. In all, Jay says he was at the hospital about 14 hours. When he left, he felt good enough to go to his daughter's wedding the next weekend and fly back to Switzerland after. The emergency appendectomy happened in June. It took six months for the bill to show up. Finally, after Jay's nudging, he got the bill in December. The price tag was just over $42,000. I don't want to try to walk away saying I don't owe you anything. Come on, that's not right. We're moral people, you know. But if you're going to try to gouge me, you know, like this. His Swiss insurance company, they don't have contracts or negotiate prices with hospitals outside of Switzerland, but ultimately said they would reimburse Jay for the appendectomy, plus the cost of some scans and laboratory work. He'll get about $8,000. That's the amount the care would have cost in Switzerland, plus double because it was an emergency abroad. Jay is still on the hook to pay the $34,000 difference. If you're a person traveling in the United States, and you, you, had, you had better be sure 
and confirm that your medical care is sufficient to cover uh, U.S. Uh, hospital care. It's so expensive and it's so outrageous. Jay is retired and living on a fixed income. My income is fixed. I'm not young. How many years is it going to take me to recoup from this? A spokesperson for the health system says it has a robust financial assistance program for patients unable to pay. They also said, to our knowledge, Jay Comfort had not applied for financial assistance and that his total bill aligns with their standard charges. Jay says he's still hoping the hospital will negotiate with him to cut the price of his bill. That was Sarah Jane Tribble with our partner, KFF Health News. And we are back now with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. And I have to say, it sounds like Jay is in a really tough spot left on his own to negotiate with this hospital. It's a really tough spot. Unfortunately for him, Jay fell ill in Pennsylvania, where one huge hospital system, UPMC, has expanded its reach throughout the state and is now the largest provider of care in many places. For example, two major hospitals in Williamsport are both owned by UPMC. Now, that kind of market control can allow for prices to get particularly high. Anyway, when you have a hot appendix, it's not a good time to shop around or drive 50 miles for a cheaper surgeon, right? And without much competition, hospitals can essentially charge whatever they want if a patient like Jay is paying out of pocket. I mean, even if he manages to negotiate the price down a bit, it's still tens of thousands of dollars and multiples of what his Swiss insurer would consider reasonable. As you mentioned, he had Swiss health insurance. Doesn't your health insurance coverage cover you wherever you go? Generally, yes, but how much they'll pay and how much financial protection you have varies a lot. I mean, costs for medical care in the U.S. can be two to three times the rate in other developed countries, so other insurers from other countries may balk at paying U.S. rates. UPMC says the health system billed Jay its standard charges for a treatment tied to the appendectomy, plus those diagnostic tests. But later, when Jay got the bill from his stay in Pennsylvania, he realized it was much, much higher than what the care would cost in Switzerland and much, much higher than what his Swiss insurance would reimburse. I mean, I imagine that had to have been a really shocking bill and pretty frustrating for Jay. What can a person do in this kind of situation? Uh, Well, foreign residents, students, contract workers, visiting expats should consider buying travel insurance before coming to the U.S., even if they have good insurance in their home country. That's one thing Jay could have done. But there's another thing Americans his age, those 65 and over, should know who are going in the other direction, traveling overseas. Medicare generally does not cover them if they're outside the U.S. But, you know, the good thing is in most other countries, the bills won't be so enormous. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you have a confusing medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us all about it. NBA star Carmelo Anthony announced Monday that he's retiring in a video posted to Twitter. My purpose was strong, my communities, the cities I represented with pride, and the fans that supported me along the way. I am forever grateful for those people and places. 
Over 19 seasons, Anthony made a name for himself with his grace, athleticism, and bullying physical prowess, says the athletics Mike Vorkanoff. He had a great pull-up jumper that he could use from anywhere on the court. He could go into the post, and the jab step was just kind of a signature Carmelo Anthony move where he would uh, keep the ball, keep a pivot foot, and jab his other foot out to try to create space. He played for several teams over the course of his career, but Vorkanov says many fans will most fondly remember his days playing for the New York Knicks, where he led the team to its most successful season in decades. In a 2014 game, he even made a little history. 37 first half points! While playing for the Knicks, Anthony set a record for the most points ever scored at Madison Square Garden. That one night really encapsulated the full Carmelo Anthony experience. He scored 62 points, but he had zero assists, right, which could be emblematic of the style of play for him, which was much more individualistic uh, than it was team-oriented, which was a criticism of his. Anthony never secured an NBA championship title, but he made up for that in Olympic wins. Anthony retires with three gold medals, more than any other men's basketball player. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we'll have the latest on the typhoon that's hitting Guam. Also coming up, a new poll suggesting that many Americans are concerned about the mental fitness of both the Republican and Democratic U.S. presidential candidates. In our weather forecast, clear and cool tonight, temperatures in the upper 40s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s, but showers are likely tomorrow night. Sunshine returns for Thursday with temperatures in the upper 60s. It will be a bit cooler on the Cape and sunny on Friday with highs again in greater Boston in the 60s. It is 57 degrees right now in Boston at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. An eating disorders helpline was seeing staff burnout and long wait times for callers in crisis, so it laid off staffers and commissioned a chatbot with a human touch. We wrote her to attempt to be empathetic, but it is not, again, a human. The debate around bringing artificial intelligence to crisis counseling. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Russia claims its forces have routed an armed incursion from Ukraine onto its territory in one of the most serious cross-border attacks since the war began there. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has the latest. Russia's defense ministry says fighter jets and artillery strikes destroyed what Russian authorities claim was a large sabotage group of Ukrainian militants that crossed into Russia's Belgorod region on Monday. Yet Ukraine has denied involvement, suggesting the figures were part of a homegrown Russian uprising. Meanwhile, a group of anti-Kremlin Russians who currently fight alongside Kiev's forces have claimed responsibility. The Kremlin spokesman expressed deep concern over the incident and said it was intended to distract from Russia's recent battlefield gains elsewhere. 
Yet the incursion follows a spate of drone strikes and attacks on Russian infrastructure that have raised questions over the Kremlin's ability to provide security at home. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Well, just ahead of what airlines are predicting will be the busiest Memorial Day weekend since before the pandemic, the U.S. Transportation Secretary says airlines have delivered considerable improvements over the past several months. Flight cancellations are down 2%, and that includes the busy spring break season that just passed. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the TSA reported one of the busiest travel days of the year just yesterday. This weekend will be a test of the system. Uh, And I think all of us have airline stories from last summer and the disruptions that took place then. Cancellation and delay rates were at unacceptable proportions last year. And it's important that that not happen again. The White House recently announced it would seek to require airlines to provide consumers with compensation, including meals and hotel stays, if they are stranded and it's the airline's fault. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. The Cambridge City Council appears close to reaching an agreement to share the names of police officers involved in use-of-force incidents. That includes the officers who were involved in this year's fatal shooting of college student Arif Saeed Faisal. Cambridge City Councilor Quentin Zondervan proposed a policy that would require the names of those officers to be immediately released, but that did not pass. The one that did requires the city to issue a status update next month. Very much a watered-down, whitewashed version of the original, which is often where we end up, but it, it does not satisfy the, the asking in any meaningful way. A police department spokesperson said the department's in the middle of an independent review and is updating its policies. Point 32 Health is letting its customers know that some personal data was stolen in a ransomware attack between March 28th and April 17th. Affected customers were notified today. All are members or providers of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. The personal data stolen could include names, addresses, phone numbers, and social security numbers. Point 32 Health is the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim. The company said it's not aware of any misuse of the data at this point. The Celtics' season is on the line tonight when they take on the Miami Heat in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Seas trail the Heat three games to none in that best-of-seven series. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. Tonight's game in Miami could be the end for the Celtics, who lost by 26 points on Sunday night. Even if Boston wins tonight, they'll have a tough task ahead of them. No NBA team has ever won a seven-game series after trailing 3-0, though it has been done in other sports. The Boston Red Sox did it in 2004. The Celtics are expected to be at full strength tonight, with no players sick or hurt as they look to extend their season. The winner of this series will play the Denver Nuggets for the NBA championship. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The time is 4.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. In our forecast, clear tonight, temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s around Boston, a bit cooler on the Cape, showers are likely tomorrow night. It's 57 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, 
partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The super typhoon Mawa could hit the U.S. territory of Guam on Wednesday. It's set to be the strongest storm to cross the island in more than 60 years. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is staging relief supplies now, and FEMA's Associate Administrator Ann Bink is here to talk about the effort. Welcome. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having me. Guam's governor has called this an imminent catastrophe. What would a direct hit mean for the more than 150,000 people who live on Guam? So Super Typhoon Maywar is forecast to bring significant threats to Guam. Current projections indicate that the storm could impact Guam at a Category 4 or even Category 5 strength uh, in just a few hours. That is a very strong storm. It's the equivalent, if not stronger, than Hurricane Ian that impacted the western shores of Florida last year. And it's not as simple to evacuate an island like Guam as it is coastal Texas or Florida. And so what is your advice to people on the island as the storm grows nearer? My advice is this is an extremely dangerous storm and everyone should listen to local officials and follow safety guidance as directed. Um, This is a shelter in place situation. Uh, The territory of Guam and the the landscape is that which is mountainous, right? You don't have a lot of the shores that you do in the coastal U.S. Um, It's actually more elevated typically. So there are locations that are safe and uh, the governor has urged folks to evacuate from coastal areas that are Mm. at risk of storm surge and other threats to move to those more insular areas. Of course, the threats include not only storm surge, but also wind and rain. And and when you look at the relief effort, Guam is far out in the Pacific Ocean, some 4,000 miles west of Hawaii. So how does FEMA preset supplies in a situation like this? Yes, we've already pre-staged not only staff, over 100 staff, but also relief supplies. We have a distribution center in Guam that has over a million liters of water and 700,000 meals. Uh, We also have distribution centers in Hawaii that can augment that should it be necessary. So we pre-stage specialized teams, uh, medical professionals, uh, really power restoration experts, really runs the gamut to ensure that after the storm passes, we can quickly begin to assess and recover from the storm with the the government of Guam. President Biden has approved an emergency declaration. What what impact does that have on your efforts? Yeah, so the president's action uh, to approve an emergency declaration for both Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands unlocks federal assistance. It allows for the pre-positioning I've talked about and also to implement activities that save lives, protect property, and provide funding for evacuation and sheltering activities. When you look at Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, does it matter at all in terms of the relief effort, whether we're talking about a state, a territory, or a different relationship to the federal government? That's absolutely correct. Um, and while the the landscape is different and some of the um, factors are different, right? This is in the far Pacific. So that's why we have a distribution center there. And that's why our regional administrator meets with Pacific leadership of the island leadership every year to make sure that resilience efforts and efforts made to um, prepare for disasters and be resilient 
against them are shared. In fact, Guam has mostly concrete infrastructure, including concrete poles, power poles. And that can go a long way in the face of a storm of this magnitude. Just in our last 30 seconds or so, you've worked in disaster recovery for years, and the strength and frequency of storms continues to grow. Is our response growing accordingly? So demands have increased in recent years. Uh, Climate change has certainly increased the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events. In 2022, there were 18 disasters that cost a billion dollars or more. And that was the third most on record behind 2020 and 2021. Hmm. So there's no doubt that demands have increased and our work with it, but we're postured to support Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, and we're postured to support all communities in need. That's Ann Bink, Associate Administrator at FEMA's Office of Response and Recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you. Age ain't nothing but a number, they say, but maybe not when you're talking about who's running for the White House. At 80 years old, President Joe Biden is the oldest commander in chief in this nation's history. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump would be 78 years old on Election Day 2024. And NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds that a majority of respondents have real concerns about each man's mental fitness to serve as president. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Martin joins us now. Domenico, welcome. Hey, great to be with you. So, Domenico, there are concerns, but what does the poll tell us? How deep do they run? And does it tell us anything about who these respondents had greater worries about? Yeah, it's especially true for President Biden. You know, more than six in 10 people say, 62%, that questions about Biden's mental fitness are a real concern and not simply a strategy that's employed by political opponents. And that includes, by the way, almost four in 10 Democrats. Not surprisingly, more than eight in 10 Republicans say they have real concerns, but so do seven in 10 independents, as well as seven in 10 people younger than 45, nearly two thirds of non-whites, and two thirds of those living in the suburbs all keep demographic groups Biden needs on his side to win in 2024. I mean, the White House and President Biden have to be aware of these concerns, but what have they said about it and why he's running again? Yeah, I mean, they do understand that this is a major vulnerability for Biden. It's the first thing voters ask about. Uh, Biden's answers to the age question is often, watch me. But when he was asked during a news conference recently about the fact that people are watching and polls are showing similar results to ours, he made a joke about it. Take a listen. With regard to age, uh, I can't even say, I guess how old I am, I can't even say the number. It doesn't, it doesn't register with me. And, uh, but the only thing I can say is that um, one of the things that people are going to find out is going to see a race, and they're going to judge whether or not I have it or don't have it. Yeah, and making that judgment, White House advisors hope that people look at his State of the Union address this year and how he sparred with Republicans. Biden himself joked at the White House Correspondents' Dinner that you say he's ancient, well, he says he's wise. And in this same poll, we should point out, Biden's approval rating is actually up to 45%, a four-point jump from last month. So there are just going to be a significant number of people who say Biden lacks a mental fitness to be president, but vote for him anyway because of the alternative. And of course, that alternative, one of them at least, is former President Trump. What does the poll tell us about him? Yeah, a slim majority here, 51 percent, say that they have real concerns about Trump's mental fitness, too. 42 percent say they do not. Uh, Now, that's considerably lower, obviously, than the level of concern about Biden, but it's not necessarily what people are going to be voting on. Even though independents have these mental fitness concerns about Biden, and he struggled with them during his presidency, we know that independents also have major issues with Trump for other reasons, his temperament, his persistent lies, the drama that surrounds him. And while Trump's the front 
frontrunner for the GOP nomination right now, overall, Trump and Trump-styled candidates have struggled badly over the last few election cycles with swing voters. And that's what Biden is counting on as part of an important piece of his path to re-election, that this antipathy toward Trump will boost him regardless of how many people feel about uh, Biden's mental fitness not being up to snuff. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thanks so much. Hey, you're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The commander-in-chief has called her the woman who controls all the money. Shalonda Young is President Biden's budget director. Before that, she was a top aide in Congress for more than a decade, where she worked behind the scenes on epic government funding battles. Now she's a top negotiator at the White House, squaring off with Republicans and trying to avert a catastrophic debt default. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more. In 2019, Shalonda Young was in the middle of a dire situation. As a staff director for the House Appropriations Committee, she was crafting proposals and holding backroom negotiations, trying to end the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. She was a steady negotiator. Nothing would ruffle her. That's Young's old boss, former House Appropriations Chair Nita Lowy. It was a challenging moment for the country, costing the U.S. economy billions. Some government spending was delayed, and hundreds of thousands of federal workers were furloughed or working without pay. Lowy says Young was critical to reaching a deal that Republicans could swallow in order to reopen the government. Armed with facts, Young would catch the subtle moments during talks and even use secret hand signals to let her boss know when things were moving in the right direction or veering off course. I can remember at one point in the negotiation, she was in back of me. And um, she was giving me advice, pointing one finger in my back, then I'd get two fingers in my back. Um, she, I could always count on her. It was that kind of experience, finding compromise, even in the most toxic of environments, that's earned Young the trust of both Republicans and Democrats. Now she's in charge of the Office of Management and Budget. It's a big role that generally is behind the scenes, but it's become a lot more prominent in recent weeks. Biden named two people for these last-ditch talks. One is Steve Reschetti, one of his oldest hands. The other is Young, a newer member of his circle. Biden has put his faith in Young to help find a way to cut through the raw politics of Washington and find an agreement that Republicans can once again live with and prevent the government from veering off a financial cliff. We have to be in a position where we can sell it to our constituencies. We're pretty well divided in the House, almost down the middle. And it's not any different in the Senate. So we got to get something that can sell to both sides. It's not just Biden who has faith in her. So do Republicans. In between partisan jabs at the president, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has taken the time to single her out. Highly respect them, their knowledge. They've been, Shalanda's worked on appropes. Everybody in this place knows her, um, respects her greatly. Since the beginning of the negotiations, Young herself has made clear that her focus is on the pragmatic. This might be Shalonda the optimist, and I've worked with a lot of those members of Congress in my nearly 15 years on the Hill. They all know 
the devastating results default. And she says nothing will be resolved until they can all get past the rancor of the politics. We saw the partisan process play out. Now we need to pivot to a bipartisan process. That's the only thing that's going to make it to the president's desk and avoid default. At least that's the goal. But they still have a way to go. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Illinois Attorney General has released a report detailing decades of child sexual abuse by Catholic clergy in that state. The report found 451 priests and religious brothers abused nearly 2,000 children. The time is 12 minutes before 5. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston, featuring seven shows, including a musical and a reimagined classic. Season ticket packages available now, starting at just $156. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, offering creative, custom solutions for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s, but showers likely tomorrow night. Sunshine returns on Thursday. It is 61 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston, LaCuchara.com. Hunter Biden is the subject of both court and congressional hearings. The committee is concerned by the complicated, suspicious network of over 20 companies. We have identified the Bidens and their associates used to enrich themselves. We'll explore the details behind the headlines about the president's son. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A story about one of the darkest chapters in Native American history is being given a global platform. Killers of the Flower Moon is a book by David Gran about a series of brutal murders that took place in Oklahoma in the 1920s, targeting Osage people for their money. Now it's become a film by Martin Scorsese. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this week, and those who worked on the movie hope it can mark a turning point for how Native people are treated on screen. Allison Herrera from Member Station KOSU reports from Cannes. 
Les Indiens Osage. It's not every day that you see indigenous people, Osage people, own the red carpet at the Cannes International Film Festival. Some wearing clothes that highlight indigenous fashion designers and others wearing traditional dress. While rock music blared over the French MC, the Osage delegation who attended were captured by a sea of cameras. Dr. Moira Redcorn, who was an extra in the film, wore a traditional Osage blanket made by her mother. She said the attention didn't faze her. I guess it didn't feel weird to me. You know, it felt like natural, like, oh, of course we should be here. But the large indigenous cast that makes up Killers of the Flower Moon is rare. It's even more unusual to see them take over a space historically dominated by white actors. And when the film screening ended, it received a nine-minute standing ovation. The first probably 30 minutes, I was like, oh, there's so-and-so, oh, there's so-and-so, oh, there's my cousin, there's da-da-da. After that died down a little bit and they went to more of this pace of the characters and the murders, it was haunting. But it wasn't gratuitous. The story is driven by the portrayals of Molly and Ernest Burkhart. Molly is Osage and has oil wealth. In order to obtain that wealth, Ernest slowly poisons her at the behest of his uncle, a white Texas cattleman who masterminded many of the murders. Osage citizens say this story deserves attention. It was hard to watch. I mean, it was hard to watch because, you know, my great-grandfather was poisoned and my dad never knew him. That's Yancey Redcorn, Moira's brother. In the movie, he plays the Osage Principal Chief Bonnie Castle, who led the tribal nation in the early 1920s. He was there because he liked the way the story was told. I was really impressed how Marty and his crew really got into the culture and really asked the, the right people to, starting off with the chief and then asking the right people to be involved. Martin Scorsese did get people involved. The film had Osage art directors, cinematographers, makeup artists. He met with Osage citizens in the Gray Horse community near Fairfax, Oklahoma, where many of the murders took place. Based on that meeting, he changed the story from a movie about the birth of the FBI to one that centered on the trust Osage citizens placed on their white neighbors and the federal government and the betrayal of that trust. Here's Scorsese. I learned about the people themselves. And, and the stories and all related to each other and there's still relations and there's still issues and so-and-so was in love, no he wasn't, yes she was, no, and it goes on like that. And I said, well, there's the story. He and his producer worked with the Osage Language Department to be accurate. Indeed, Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro all speak Osage in the movie. Principal Chief Jeffrey Standing Bear said it was impressive to hear. We get our own conceptions, preconceptions about what is involved and maybe think it, oh, well, Bob De Niro just wakes up and naturally it's everything comes right out. <laughs> but these are very hardworking people. Kara Jade Myers plays Anna Brown. I've been on sets before and you walk in there and you're the only native. And then literally you're the cultural consultant, you're like the fact checker, you're, you know, they expect you to know everything. We're always, you know, a little hesitant, right? Actor Tatanka Means plays the native FBI agent John Wren. He says the experience working on this film was different. Martin Scorsese, I feel like laid down new foundation here that I hope other filmmakers take into consideration. I hope other studios take into consideration and writers is go to the community, go to the people, speak with them and 
you know, work with them. That's big. For the Osage, the movie is big. But more importantly, they want people to know they're not relics. As the film comes out this fall, the tribal nation will have its own message. We are Wajaji always. They're still here, and they're thriving. For NPR News, I'm Allison Herrera in Cannes, France. Rick Hoyt was known for competing in the Boston Marathon from his wheelchair while his father pushed. He has died from respiratory complications. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer spoke with the father-son duo nearly a decade ago. I met the Hoyts at Dick's home in the small central Massachusetts town of Holland. The house is a shrine to Team Hoyt. Walls lined with medals and plaques that won in their nearly 1,100 races, and photos of them with luminaries they've met over the years. See, this is Ronald Reagan, and this is Johnny Kelly, the great Johnny Kelly that ran the Boston Marathon. They didn't imagine becoming such VIPs back when they first raced together when Rick was 15 years old. Rick has cerebral palsy. His mind is intact, but he can't speak or control his limbs. One day, he used his computerized voice to tell his dad about a charity road race. It was for a student lacrosse player who'd been badly injured in an accident. When Rick came home, he told me all about it. He said, Dad, I have to do something for him. I want to let him know life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. At the time, Dick Hoyt was far from in top physical condition. He didn't want to say no to his son, though. We finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. (laughs) (laughs) And when we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. For Rick, being on a race course gave him the sense he was as able-bodied as all the other competitors. He called himself Freebird because now he was free and able to be out there competing and running with everybody else. Then they began doing longer races, and eventually set their sights on the Boston Marathon. They made us qualify in Rick's age group. And that was kind of tough, because Rick was in his 20s, I was in my 40s, and they were using Rick's age for us to qualify. The Boston Marathon became an annual event for them. The Boston Marathon is the one event that I look forward to all year long. This is Rick's computerized voice the one that lets him express all the ideas and feelings teeming in his head that his mouth can't produce. The people along the way are the best. When I hear them yell our names out, it gives me a great feeling inside. Many people have asked me what I would do if I weren't disabled. I have thought long and hard about what I would do if I weren't in a wheelchair. Maybe I would play hockey, basketball, or baseball, but then I thought about it some more, and realized that what I would probably do first is, tell my dad to sit down in the wheelchair, and now I would push him. That was NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer's 2014 interview with Boston Marathon icon Rick Hoyt, who died yesterday at the age of 61. Rick's father, Dick Hoyt, died in 2021. Together, they completed more than a thousand races, including 32 Boston marathons. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary II. 
With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. And from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. This is 90.9 WBUR in our forecast. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the 40s. Tomorrow it'll be sunny. Highs will get into the 70s tomorrow, but we do have showers likely tomorrow night. Sunshine returns on Thursday with temperatures in greater Boston in the upper 60s a bit cooler on the Cape. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A report in Illinois says Catholic leaders there protected known child sex abusers for decades. And because of the statute of limitations, many survivors of child sex abuse will never see justice. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the investigation in Illinois that found hundreds of priests abused thousands of children over a 70-year span. Also this hour, still no deal between the White House and congressional negotiators on the debt ceiling. And we sit down with activist and football quarterback Colin Kaepernick to talk about his new book, plus the latest on the typhoon that's threatening Guam and the Mariana Islands. Forecast says clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s. It's 5.01. First, this hour's news. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Staff-level negotiators met for more than two hours today to discuss the debt ceiling and the budget. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, they don't appear any closer to avoiding a debt default. Coming out of the negotiating session, House Republicans were down on where things stand, saying any agreement to raise the debt ceiling must involve less federal spending. Meanwhile, the White House is talking about reducing the deficit by closing tax loopholes and raising taxes on billionaires, which has already been rejected by Republicans. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the talks have yielded one agreement, default isn't an option. We believe they've been productive. We believe there is a space and an opportunity here to have a bipartisan, reasonable, reasonable budget agreement. But the clock is ticking. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Former President Donald Trump has been told by the judge in his upcoming criminal trial in New York he is free to campaign for president, but he cannot talk about certain sensitive materials. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports today's hearing highlighted some of the likely complications that will come up with the trial. Trump joined the hearing in a New York courtroom by video link from Florida so as to avoid extensive security preparations. Sitting beside him, Trump's lawyer said his client understands he's not allowed to talk about emails and documents that come out of the discovery process, but as a candidate for president, he is concerned about his free speech rights. 
Judge Juan Mershon responded that he isn't trying to block Trump from campaigning. Quote, he is certainly free to deny the charges. He is free to do just about anything that doesn't violate the specific terms of this protective order. Judge Mershon also affirmed the trial will begin March 25, 2024, right in the middle of the presidential primary season. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. Americans are buying less lumber and more soccer balls. NPR Scott Horsley reports on what we can learn from two large retailers about current spending habits. Lowe's is projecting lower sales and profits this year, saying it expects sales at its home improvement stores to fall between 2 and 4 percent from last year's level. Rival Home Depot issued a similar warning last week. Falling lumber prices account for some of the drop, but shoppers are also devoting less money to their homes and spending more on things like travel and leisure activities, including sports. Dick's Sporting Goods reported stronger-than-expected sales and profits today for its most recent quarter. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Streaming video service Netflix has begun its efforts to crack down on password sharing by users. Company alerting account holders they cannot share accounts for free with people outside their households. Streaming video service has been looking at ways to make money and is emailing customers who've been sharing passwords to let them know they'll be expected to spend more money. It'll cost them an extra $8 a month to do so. A mix closed on Wall Street, but the Dow was down 231 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. The cleanup of the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant will be delayed for four years. The cleanup company says the reasons mostly economic, high inflation, increased labor costs, and a poor return on the trust fund set up to pay for decommissioning. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. The decommissioning company, Holtec, says it will delay dismantling the reactor and the building around it unless the economy shifts in its favor. Holtec compliance manager David Noyes says the delay is about doing the job right, not about increasing company profits. The first and most important job is to make sure that there's adequate money to be able to complete the job we started, and and we're not going to shortcut that. Holtec says most of the site will be cleaned up by 2031. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The number of reported hate crimes in Massachusetts jumped 30 percent in the past year. That's according to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League, which compiled local incidents in 2021 and 2022. Peggy Shuker is the organization's regional director, and she says increased activity by white supremacist groups is partly to to blame. There's a great rise in extremist propaganda. Massachusetts ranks second in the number of documented white supremacist propaganda incidents in 2022, second only to Texas. In addition to anti-Black and racist attacks, the report documents incidents targeting Jewish people, immigrants, and members of the LGBTQ plus community. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is suing a telecommunications company for making billions of robocalls. Campbell's part of a group of state attorneys general who claim that in four years, Avid Telecom made more than seven and a half billion billion calls to numbers, even though those numbers were listed on the National Do Not Call Registry. If true, that's a violation of federal and state laws. More than 105 million of those calls were made to Massachusetts phone numbers. In sports, Celtics have a must-win game on the line tonight in the Eastern Conference playoffs against the Heat. Miami leads that series three games to none. Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim. Forecast says clear tonight. Temperatures in the 40s, sunny 
tomorrow, highs in the 70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. A history of massive clergy sexual abuse and cover-up. That's the finding of a report today from Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. Decades of Catholic leadership decisions and policies have allowed known child sex abusers to hide, often in plain sight. Joining us now with more is NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose. And Jason, how widespread did the investigation find this clergy sex abuse to be? Well, Juana, the report includes the names and details of 451 Catholic priests, as well as religious brothers, who abused at least 1,997 children across Illinois. And that's over a 70-year period. The report says the various Catholic dioceses in the state had only listed 103 substantiated abusive priests on their websites. Now, that's a big difference, 451 versus 103. In addition to the numbers, the report also includes some really heart-rending details of the abuse, and it highlights what it calls a troubling pattern of the church failing to support survivors, ignoring or covering up reports of abuse, and the church re-victimizing survivors who came forward. And it also has many recommendations about how to handle future child sex abuse allegations. And Jason, what about the church? How is the church responding to this? Well, first, let me explain that this investigation covers all six dioceses or archdioceses in Illinois. And the biggest one, the Archdiocese of Chicago, put out a lengthy statement today. It says it has concerns that the data are being presented in a way that could be misleading. The Archdiocese says these alleged abusers had already been disclosed, but the report listed even more. Now, in direct response to a criticism of the church in this report that an outsider should have been involved in overseeing internal abuse investigations, the church says it already has an internal review board that includes non-clergy, but no people outside the church itself. And the archdiocese says the instances of abuse have dropped off dramatically in recent decades because of newer safeguards it's implemented. This report from the state of Illinois is the latest statewide investigation, but it's not the first. That's right. These sorts of investigations were inspired by what happened in Pennsylvania back in the year 2018. A lengthy grand jury report came out then that detailed really horrific reviews by 300 Catholic priests from that state. It found more than a thousand children had been abused by clergy there. At the time, several attorneys general said they were opening their own investigations based on what they saw happening in Pennsylvania. And among them was then Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan. I mean, Jason, it has now been well more than two decades since the widespread abuse in the Archdiocese of Boston came to light. How is it that we are still hearing about these cases all these years later? Well, I think the first answer is time. First, remember that the abuse became known because of the Boston Globe's groundbreaking investigation back then. There were individual trials of priests, but prosecutors and law enforcement officials, such as attorneys general, then moved to a more systemic approach. 
like these investigations. So they wanted to look more broadly at what was happening. And then victims of abuse grow up. They seek therapy, they seek counseling, and they're more likely to come forward then. Now, I also think it's worth noting that in the wake of the Me Too movement, many survivors of clergy sex abuse say they're talking now because they're more likely to be believed. And as more come forward, that emboldens even other victims to come forward and do the same. NPR's Jason DeRose, thank you. You're welcome. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met last night and directed their teams to continue talking about a deal to raise the country's borrowing authority. But nine days before the Treasury Secretary says the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills, Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves, a top GOP negotiator, says there's still a long way from any agreement. I'm telling you that, that we still have substantial distance between us and them on numbers right now. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is here to talk about how both parties are feeling about taking up some kind of compromise. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Ari. The speaker and the president both called their meeting productive. Are there signs they could be finding the outlines of a deal here? There are signs they're narrowing down the issues. The negotiating teams met for roughly two hours earlier today. But the big sticking point is still the Republican push for spending cuts. The House GOP bill that passed last month rolled back federal spending levels to those from two years ago. The White House is suggesting is suggesting that they freeze spending levels to where they are now. But the message that we're hearing from the speaker over and over again is he wants the country to be spending less than it's spending now, and he's not willing to raise the debt ceiling without those cuts. The Republican majority in the House is so small. Is Speaker McCarthy holding his members together? He is. And many House Republicans, moderates and conservatives alike, say the speaker gained a lot of political capital inside the Republican conference by being able to pass that bill last month. And a lot of Republicans say the White House really underestimated McCarthy's ability to get something through. I talked to one House conservative, Georgia Republican Andrew Clyde. He was actually one of the holdouts in January who didn't initially vote for McCarthy for speaker. But now he's saying the speaker is doing a good job. We came up with a phenomenal plan. He is um, charging ahead with that plan. I think we are in a very strong position. Easier to say before there's an actual plan (laughs) on the table. Are they going to back a compromise? I mean, for now, they're saying no way. They continue to say that Republicans passed the only bill that's gotten through a chamber. And like you said, without any details on a final deal, that they can continue to say they're not going to support anything less. I would definitely expect a good chunk of those in the Freedom Caucus to vote no on any compromise. But the speaker has told reporters in the last couple of days he does expect a large majority of House Republicans to back whatever he puts on the floor. Another House Republican, uh, Dusty Johnson from South Dakota heads up a group of centrists, and he told reporters today he thinks there is some openness to agreeing to some of what the White House wants. As long as the deal changes how this town spends money, uh, I think people are going to be open to considering uh, considering some, uh, some of what the White House wants to see as well. Okay, that's the Republican side of the ledger. Let's talk about the Democrats. Progressives have been pushing the president to use the 14th Amendment to get around having to compromise with the speaker. Uh, Would they support some kind of deal that cuts federal spending if that's what it comes down to? 
I mean, a lot of progressives say they're in no mood and they really want to urge the president to hold the line and not give in to any kind of compromise. One of those leading progressives, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made it clear she's not going to vote for something and she really hasn't heard from the White House asking her. Kevin McCarthy needs five votes. He can get them from somewhere, but he's not going to get it from me. And what about more moderate Democrats? You know, there are moderates here who've been saying no one's going to be happy with a compromise and divided government, but it's all about avoiding default. One of those moderates, Minnesota Democrat Dean Phillips, said he thought the talk should have started earlier, but if if something reaches the floor, he does expect to vote for it. If it's a good deal and the right one for the country, that probably means you lose some Democrats and you lose some Republicans. The tricky part for both the speaker and the president right now is striking this balance to get enough votes from both parties in the end and get something to his desk. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. For the past few days in Mexico, the volcano popularly known as El Popo has been spewing a toxic mix of ash and smoke. Now the residents who live in its shadow have been told to prepare for a possible evacuation. Ash from the volcano has delayed flights from Mexico City and forced authorities to close schools in nearby towns, as James Frederick reports. The smog that so often covers Mexico City can obscure the view and make it easy to forget about the glacier-topped mountain range that rings around the southeast of the city. But one of those peaks has been reminding locals of its presence via a light dusting of ash covering sidewalks and windshields. Popocatepetl, the towering, majestically conical 17,900-foot volcano 45 miles outside of Mexico City, is waking up a bit. It's been spouting steam and ash regularly and occasionally exploding more violently, sending rocks flying outside the crater. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says they're watching closely and are prepared. He says they've been working since strong eruptions first started. Thousands of National Guard troops are waiting and ready to aid evacuations if activity intensifies. The dusting of ash and distant rumbling isn't unprecedented. Popocatepetl had similar activity in 1994 and in the early 2000s, and again from 2012 to 2016. There hasn't been a catastrophic eruption since the 9th century. But with more than 25 million people living within a 60-mile radius of the volcano, most of them in Mexico City, it's hard not to be a bit concerned. Authorities recently raised the stoplight warning system to yellow phase 3, one step away from the dangerous red alert. Laura Velázquez, the National Coordinator of Civilian Protection, says they're preparing staff, evacuation equipment, and shelters should they become necessary. Over the last 24 hours, the team monitoring El Popo registered two major explosions, five emissions of steam, volcanic gas, and ash, and near-constant tremors. Popocatépetl, which means smoking mountain in Nahuatl, is not yet a threat to people. For now, Authorities are urging calm. The time-lapse videos of the volcano early this morning, as it lit up the night sky with its eruptions, are terrifying, but undeniably beautiful. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in the shadow of Popocatépetl in Mexico City. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we talk with Colin Kaepernick about his book that details his pivot from baseball to football and how he found himself in the process. It's 18 minutes past five. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 200 points today amid the continuing uncertainty over the U.S. debt limit. In local business news, uh, jobless rates dropped in 24 labor markets across Massachusetts last month compared with March. Statewide, the Executive Office of Labor and Workforce Development says 5,100 jobs were created in April. The largest increases were in Barnstable, Pittsfield, and in the Lemonster-Gardner areas. Marketplace will have all the business news in just about an hour from now at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges, babson.edu MBA. In our forecast, clear tonight, temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s. We could see scattered showers tomorrow night, but then sunshine Thursday and Friday. Temperatures in greater Boston in the upper 60s both days. It'll be a bit cooler on the Cape and for the weekend, partly cloudy Saturday, highs in the 70s, sunny Sunday, highs near 80 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Before he was the face of a protest movement, before he was a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl, Colin Kaepernick was a teenager who, like many teenagers, was trying to figure out who he was and where he was going. Navigating the difficulties of of family, community, school, and major life decisions. Like whether to pursue baseball, where he had lots of offers from colleges and pro teams, or football, which in his heart, he loved more. And what it meant that his adoptive parents were white, but the world saw him as black. So it's trying to navigate that while having a white family and being in a predominantly white community and trying to find ways to make sure that my identity and my blackness isn't stripped from me along that journey. His new graphic novel, written with Eve Ewing and illustrated by Orlando Caicedo, is about that time in his life. It's called Change the Game. At one point, young Colin Kaepernick decides to get his hair braided in cornrows. When we spoke, he said he'd been inspired by an athlete who played neither baseball nor football, the NBA superstar Allen Iverson. He was someone that I looked up to. And I saw him be so unapologetically Black and unapologetically himself. 
it was something that I aspired to. And I looked at that as an opportunity for me to be able to really take hold of my blackness and do it in a way that I was proud of and I was excited about. And the difficulty with that is being in white culture um, with Eurocentric beauty standards, uh, navigating what their response to that was. At 15 years old, it took me, I think, about 14 years before I grew my hair back out. Wow. So it's really to show the impact those moments can have on a young man, on a young woman, and how that carries with them through life. This is not the first book that you've published that's aimed at younger audiences. You also, along with illustrator Eric Wilkerson, published a children's book called I Color Myself Different that charts a really pivotal moment in your younger life. And this book, Change the Game, of course, is a graphic novel. What made you want to put out a graphic novel? (laughs) There were a few reasons. One of the reasons growing up, I wasn't an avid reader because I didn't have stories or I wasn't introduced to books that had characters that I related to. Um, It wasn't until I read um, We'll Never Forget You, Roberto Clemente, that I saw another Black person as the lead of a book. It was game-changing for me. How so? Um, I, I knew there were other books out there and other opportunities to be able to find stories, to find narratives that I identified with. So what we're looking to do now is, for younger audiences, give them hopefully characters and stories that they relate to, but also give them pieces of knowledge and situations and try to help them navigate those in ways that I didn't have access to growing up and based upon conversations that I've had, a lot of other people didn't as well. When you're trying to correct a problem, you should start by looking in the mirror. That note my father left for me has stuck with me ever since. I was so mad at him in that moment. I learned a lesson that day I haven't been able to shake since. There are a lot of things around me I can't control, but I can control how I react to them, how I maneuver in a situation. That is an excerpt from the audiobook of Colin Kaepernick's Change the Game. You know, this book, um, towards the end, it shows you in one of the panels on the phone in an office receiving a phone call from a coach at the University of Nevada, Reno, offering you a football scholarship for the first time. And that's sort of where the book leaves your story. It doesn't delve into your pro football career. It doesn't delve into your college years. So I'm curious, from a storytelling standpoint, why stop there before you head off to the university, before we see you in the NFL? So we, we end the story there, one, to make sure that uh, we don't have a never-ending book because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of story to tell. Uh, but the other part of it is we wanted to create a defining moment that younger kids and high school kids could identify with, which is that transition and decision to, of what to do after high school. And for me at that point in time, Baseball was the obvious decision for everyone around me. I had multiple offers. I had the MLB come and sit down in my living room and tell me they wanted to draft me. There was an obvious career path there. And I had not a single offer for football at this point, but it was what I loved and what I wanted to do in spite of everyone else telling me I should go a different direction. 
One of the last pages of this book ends with this image of you where you're surrounded by the bright lights. You've got that number seven red jersey on the gold pants. You're taking a knee and the image of you on a knee like that is one that is familiar for many people, even those who do not watch football. You have not played in the NFL since January 2017, six years ago at this point. I want to ask you, do you believe that the NFL has changed for the better since you were last on that field? <laughs> uh, I haven't seen any substantial change. I think there is a, a lot of work to do on that front. Um, obviously, not playing and being out of the NFL for six years is an indictment on where they are currently at. So I wouldn't put them at the forefront of uh, goodwill and best of intentions in how they operate. You know, I have to wonder, given all the time that's passed, given everything that has happened since you first took a knee during an NFL game, I wonder, removed from all of that, do you spend much time thinking about what your career might have looked like if you were still playing in the league? Or do you think that losing that career and some of those opportunities was key to doing something greater, to creating some lasting change? No, I think there's a this idea out there that those are mutually exclusive and I don't subscribe to that. So I think people are multifaceted and multi-talented and, and ultimately that's something that we want to make sure that message is being sent as well. We have the opportunity to move forward and not be pigeonholed into singular elements of ourselves. But do you, though, do you think back about what your career could have looked like, or, or have, is this something that you don't consider quite as much at this point? My focus is always on what I can do moving forward. What can I do to change my my present and my future? Um, so training at 4.30 to be able to have the opportunity to make a comeback, absolutely. That's something I do five days a week still. But as far as looking back, that's not something I do. I, I'm looking forward to where can I have an impact? What are my passions? And a great example of that is Change the Game. And this book being able to come out, us being able to share this message with the youth, and it becomes a great opportunity for us to be able to create a, a future that looks different. Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, his graphic novel, Change the Game, is out now. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, a new, a new survey that finds that support for extremist groups is generally lower among military veterans than in the general population. Weather forecast says it'll be clear and cool tonight with temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s. Showers are likely tomorrow night and sunshine on Thursday with highs in the upper 60s. It will be a bit cooler on the Cape. It is 68 degrees right now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton with full-day summer art camps for 1st through 12th graders. More information at newartcenter.org. An eating disorders helpline was seeing staff burnout and long wait times for callers in crisis, so it laid off staffers and commissioned a chatbot with a human touch. We wrote her to attempt to be empathetic, but it is not, again, a human. The debate around bringing artificial intelligence to crisis counseling. Tomorrow
tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House and congressional Republicans have ended their latest round of debt ceiling talks with no signs of progress yet. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports the two sides remain deeply divided about how to cap government spending. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the Biden administration are working to prevent the nation's first ever debt default. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reiterated Monday that the nation could run out of money to pay its bills as early as June 1st. The Biden administration and House Republicans have each doubled down on their own red lines, and they blame each other for slow progress. On the table are items like work requirements for federal safety net programs, COVID and climate funding, and permitting reform. House members are bracing to be pulled into work over the upcoming Memorial Day holiday weekend in order to prevent an economic crisis late next week. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. President Biden has approved an emergency declaration as a dangerous super typhoon approaches the U.S. Pacific Territory of Guam. The National Weather Service says the storm has been upgraded to a Category 4 with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour or greater. Melissa Savares is mayor of one of the most populous villages on Guam. She's ordered residents there to flee areas that are prone to flooding. We've been driving around the village to speak to various residents, uh, advising that um, as soon as the shelter is opened, uh, we're advising them to take shelter uh, because of the strength of the storm. The governor of Guam has requested assistance to help mitigate what's expected to be a catastrophic storm. The Weather Service warns of a triple threat of strong winds, torrential rains, and life-threatening storm surge. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Federal authorities have arrested the operator of several sober homes in Massachusetts on fraud charges. The Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office says 37-year-old Daniel Cleggett and his associate are accused of several alleged scams involving the sober homes, as well as an alleged scheme with a federal loan program for businesses that were affected during the pandemic. Cleggett did not enter a plea during his court appearance today. He was released on various conditions. Cleggett's company operates sober homes in Boston, Wakefield, Quincy, and in Weymouth. Massachusetts correctional officials are investigating the stabbing of a correction officer at a Massachusetts maximum security prison. The Department of Correction says the officer has been released from the hospital where he was treated after he was repeatedly stabbed. It happened last night while the officer was trying to break up a fight at the Susan Baranowski Correctional Center, according to the Correction Officers Union. Kevin Flanagan, who's with the union, says other officers stepped in as well force needed to be used to gain control of the inmates. And uh, luckily, nobody was severely injured, but we did have several officers uh, receive minor injuries. The prisoner who allegedly stabbed the officer has been removed from his housing unit. He faces disciplinary action as well as possible criminal charges. St. John's Prep in Danvers will be back open for classes tomorrow. The boys' Catholic school was closed yesterday after a pair of police incidents. Officers first responded to reports of a school shooter, and that turned out to be false. But during that response, an officer's gun accidentally discharged an 
bathroom. No one was hurt. Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton is among a group of lawmakers calling for more investments in mental health care for students. The group has filed a a resolution to declare a national youth mental health crisis. Moulton says almost half of American adolescents have faced mental health disorders at some point in their lives. The time is 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the 2023 Boston Early Music Festival, featuring Grammy Award-winning opera, concerts, and more, June 4th to 11th in Boston. BEMF.org. In sports, Celtics have a must-win game in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Heat tonight. Miami leads that series three games to none. The Red Sox play the Angels in Anaheim. Our weather forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the 40s. Tonight, sunny. Highs in the 70s. We could see some showers developing tomorrow night, but ending by Thursday when it'll be mostly sunny with highs in the 60s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In a Manhattan courtroom today, former President Trump was told by a judge he is free to campaign for president, but he can't talk about sensitive materials related to his upcoming criminal trial. Trump appeared by video link from Florida for a hearing that served as a preview of what may be to come in this case related to hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels, an adult film actress. NPR's Ilya Meritz was there and joins me now. Hey there. Good. Hello. Hey, so the purpose of this hearing was to go over a protective order in this case. What is that? And tell us why it matters. A protective order is a pretty routine thing after someone is charged with crimes. Basically, what it does is lay out the terms for what the parties in the case can and cannot say as the discovery phase unfolds and materials like emails and documents get shared back and forth. But this case is not like other cases, A, because a former president is accused of hiding the repayment of hush money paid to a porn actress over an alleged affair he pleaded not guilty, and B, which is really important, when he is the target of an investigation or a court case, Donald Trump has a pattern of going after his adversaries hard on social media and in public statements, basically trampling the rules which defendants usually abide by. You were in court today. Tell us what you heard and saw. When I entered the courtroom, we saw President Trump and his lawyer Todd Blanche on a big screen TV with a live feed from Trump's home in Florida, two American flags hanging behind him, and he looked a little bit impatient. He only spoke once when Judge Juan Mershon asked uh, the former president if he had a copy of the protective order. Trump said, I do. Trump's lawyer Todd Blanche told the judge he had already reviewed the contents with his client. The judge was satisfied with that. So they didn't actually go over the specific individual points in the order, like how Trump shouldn't share discovery materials on his Truth Social Network or how certain documents he'll only get to see in the presence of his lawyers. But Trump's attorney did raise one matter, which I think may come up again. Trump is running for president. He's concerned about his free speech rights as he makes his pitch to voters. Judge Mershon said, 
This is not a gag order. Quote, it is not my intention to impede Mr. Trump's ability to campaign. He is certainly free to deny the charges. He is free to do just about anything that doesn't violate the specific terms of this protective order. Okay, and you mentioned Trump's pattern of lashing out at judges and prosecutors. Have we seen that in this case so far? Yes. Even before he was criminally charged, Trump was posting angry messages about the case to social media, and death threats have been made both to Judge Juan Marchand and to the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg. In the recent E. Jean Carroll civil sexual assault and defamation suit, the judge was concerned enough about safety that he ordered that the jurors be kept anonymous. Uh, Throughout that trial, Trump lobbed insults at the plaintiff, her lawyers, and the judge. The judge warned about additional potential penalties if Trump kept it up. In the end, there were none. But today, Judge Mershon said Trump risks being held in contempt of court if he doesn't abide by this order. And there's actually a little precedent for this. In 2022, Trump was ordered to pay a $110,000 contempt fine for failing to honor a court subpoena for documents in a separate civil investigation of Trump business practices. So, Ilya, what comes next for this case? Prosecutors said they are ready to hand a hard drive with initial discovery materials to the Trump team right away. Both sides will then start developing facts and building their arguments in a detailed way. Judge Marchand said the Trump trial will begin on March 25th, 2024. That is smack dab in the middle of primary season. So we could have Trump out campaigning for president one day and in court in Manhattan the next. It's hard to say exactly how that's going to work. Nothing like it has happened since Eugene Debs ran for president in 1920, and that was a pretty different circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this could still all unfold quite differently. Trump's legal team has filed a motion to move this to federal court, and that'll get a hearing next month. NPR's Elia Meritz, thank you. You're welcome. Super Typhoon Mawa is nearing the U.S. territory of Guam. It's expected to become a Category 5 storm as it nears land, with winds of 160 miles an hour. A state of emergency is in effect for the island. NPR's Rebecca Hersher is covering this. Hey, Rebecca. Hi. How dangerous is this storm for people who live on Guam? Uh, It is extremely dangerous. The winds are powerful enough to snap power poles. It's pushing a wall of water in front of it. Guam is a very low-lying island. And when that storm surge arrives, it could sweep away entire homes, uh, vegetation, trees, everything in its path. Forecasters are predicting between 6 and 10 feet of storm surge, and and that's on the low end. There could be areas with more. Um, That's up to the roofline of a single-story house, so it's very life-threatening. And on top of that, this storm will drop a lot of rain, up to 20 inches. So even those who who live farther inland on the island will see dangerous flash floods flash flooding. And how unusual are storms of this magnitude in this part of the world? You know, they're they're quite rare. Guam has only experienced a couple of storms this powerful in recorded history. Part of that is just probability. You know, Guam is a very small island, so the chances that a storm will hit it are pretty low. But the other reason is that storms this powerful are really not that common, or they weren't for most of human history. But they're getting more likely because of climate change. And Let me lay it out. You know, humans burn fossil fuels, release enormous amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Those gases trap heat, and most of that heat is actually soaked up by the world's oceans. So the oceans are heating up, and right now they're hotter than ever. This storm, it moved over abnormally warm water as it formed. And what impact does that warm water have on the storm passing over? 
the heat in the water, it, it's like the fuel for the storm. It helps the typhoon get really powerful. And that actually happened really quickly with this storm. It went from a Category 1 typhoon, which means it had winds that could barely remove a shingle from your roof when it first formed, to a Category 4 typhoon. That means winds that can tear the roof off your house entirely. And all of that happened in just one day. That kind of rapid intensification, it is getting more common as the Earth heats up. Now, scientists are still teasing apart that exact connection between climate change and this kind of rapid intensification, but it makes sense, right? Warmer ocean water would make that more likely because heat is power, and studies have shown a trend of more storms that are rapidly intensifying, both in the Pacific, where this storm is, and also in the Atlantic, where hurricanes form. What other signs of climate change do you see in this particular storm? There are two, uh, and they both have to do with flooding. So climate change makes both storm surge and that inland flooding I was talking about from rain more severe. Let's take storm surge first. So storm surge from a storm like this one is more dangerous because of sea level rise. Higher seas means that there's more water on the coast, even on a sunny day. And so it makes the storm surge even more damaging when it does arrive. There's just more water. The second connection is about rain. Torrential rain is more likely as the Earth heats up in general and also from hurricanes. And that's because a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture. So when a storm like this one hits land, all of that water vapor, it falls as rain. And research has already shown that past storms have actually dropped more rain because of climate change. They can make that connection. That is a real possibility when this storm hits Guam in the coming hours. Rebecca Hersher of NPR's Climate Desk, thank you. Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. How many people with extremist views have ties to the military? The National Guard may have missed the signs that a suspected leaker of highly classified intelligence info, Jack Teixeira, was stockpiling guns and posting on social media about mass killings. And the Pentagon last week admitted it has not implemented most of a plan meant to counter extremism in the ranks. Despite those kinds of headlines, there is better news about veterans. NPR's Quill Lawrence tells us about a new nationwide survey that it suggests people who have left military service generally don't embrace extremism on either the left or the right. Stories about veterans and extremism regularly make the news, like the recent guilty plea by a U.S. Marine for breaking into the Capitol on January 6th. Initial reports suggested huge numbers of veterans in that mob. The real number turned out much lower, says Todd Helmus with the Rand Corporation. Those initial reports spurred a lot of fear and concern about the risk of veterans, but no one's actually looked at the numbers. Helmus and his colleagues did and were encouraged by what they found in a survey of about 1,000 veterans nationwide, says fellow researcher Ryan Brown. Some examples of that, the general public, 7% support for white supremacists and less than 1% support for white supremacists among veterans. 9% of the general public has a positive view of the far-right Proud Boys, compared to just 4% of veterans. The vast majority of deadly political violence in America comes from the far right, but Rand also surveyed views about Antifa. About 10% of the general public say they support the far-left movement. Only 5.5% of veterans said they support Antifa. 
violent extremist groups do target veterans for their skill set, Brown says. Vets, on average, seem to be very resilient to those efforts. And so I think that some of the characteristics that draw you to serve your country will help protect against forces that would undermine your country. Brown and Helmus are not veterans. They were pleasantly surprised by the findings. U.S. Marine vet Joe Plensler was not surprised. If veterans are overrepresented in the January 6th mob, it's important to remember that they're also overrepresented in the halls of Congress. They're overrepresented in state legislatures, they're overrepresented in, in town councils. So, you know, I, I think when people put their hand in the air and swear to support and defend the Constitution, that oath doesn't end when we leave the Department of Defense. Lensler is on the board of a group called We the Veterans. They recruit vets to fill the nationwide shortage of election poll workers. Ellen Gustafson co-founded that group. We had a story from a Vietnam veteran in New Jersey um, who said he had two experiences that were kind of difficult as a poll worker um, at his polling location. One where a, a guy walked in with a Biden hat and another where a guy walked in with a um, red Make America Great Again hat. He told both of them, um, you know, politely to take them off and they did without incident. She says when that Vietnam vet asked the men to take off their political hats, he was wearing a 101st Airborne hat, which is not political. And that's the point. There's a lot of people in America who, who are looking at our military and veteran community as, you know, woke. And then in another media silo, you, you could easily take away that our military is full of white supremacists. And as a military spouse who lives in this community, I know that not to be true because, as we believe, veterans, you know, in many ways should know better and had the experience as Americans working across a lot of different backgrounds to, to just get the job done for our country. The RAND researchers stress their report is just a start, just a survey, but they're optimistic with what they've learned so far. Will Lawrence, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, for those suffering from long COVID, getting approved for long-term federal disability appears to be a challenge. And just ahead, the promised reforms in jails run by the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's 11 minutes before 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures in the 40s, and the holiday weekend is shaping up to be nice. It'll be sunny tomorrow with highs in the 70s, a bit cooler on the Cape. Showers likely tomorrow night, but sunshine returns Thursday and Friday. Temperatures in greater Boston both days should be in the 60s. For Saturday, sunny, getting warmer, highs in the 70s, mostly sunny Sunday with highs near 80 degrees. And for Memorial Day on Monday, sunshine with highs near 80 degrees. It is 68 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. An eating disorders helpline was seeing staff burnout and long wait times for callers in crisis, so it laid off staffers and commissioned a chatbot with a human touch. We wrote her to 
attempt to be empathetic, but it is not, again, a human. The debate around bringing artificial intelligence to crisis counseling. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Last year, the Bureau of Indian Affairs said it was reforming tribal jails. The announcement came after an NPR investigation found at least 19 people had died in the jails since 2016, often due to a lack of medical care or poor staff training. The Bureau promised dozens of reforms, but a new federal report says inmates continue to die. New Hampshire Public Radio's Nate Hedgie explains. The Bureau of Justice Statistics found that last fiscal year, at least four inmates died and 46 attempted suicide in tribal jails. That's the most deaths and attempted suicides the agency has recorded in nearly a decade. The Bureau also found that several of the 80 tribal jails nationwide continue to struggle with overcrowding and staff retention. Nearly a fifth of all their correctional officers quit between 2019 and 2022. Our correctional facilities are really understaffed. Sue Parton is president of a union that represents correctional officers in tribal jails. She says they have quit in droves in recent years because of low pay, bad working conditions, and a slew of temporary transfers when guards are forced to move, sometimes hundreds of miles away, to fill in a staffing gap. It's pretty demoralizing for a lot of the employees, especially in corrections, who are not that highly paid and they struggle to be away from their family and their community. Late last year, Congress appropriated nearly $23 million to help increase staffing and retention. The money didn't arrive in time for its effects to be reflected in the latest Bureau of Justice Statistics report. Congress also directed the Interior Department to take a hard look at the jails. A preliminary investigation found deplorable conditions in at least three in the Southwest. One had to be evacuated after a snowstorm for fear it would collapse, and investigators found leaking pipes and gaping cracks that allowed adult inmates to look into juvenile cells. Testifying at a Senate budget hearing earlier this month, Brian Newland, head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, said the agency needs more money than Congress appropriated last year. I think it's been uh, well documented. Our jails across the BIA system are in poor condition, and we've also come up with an ability to rank them to prioritize which ones should be replaced, but we need the dollars to do that to make sure the people in our care and custody uh, get the treatment they're entitled to. On Thursday, Newland will face another round of questions at a House oversight hearing. For NPR News, I'm Nate Hedgie. Listening, staying flexible, meeting people where they are. These are all key skills that Cameron Fields used in his job as a reporter for Cleveland.com. And they will all transfer well to his new job, where he may also need to help with tying shoes and spelling without spell check. Cameron Fields is heading from the newsroom to the classroom, and he joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Juana. Yeah, I really appreciate being here. Cameron, start at the beginning for us. How did you fall in love with journalism? I started just kind of like as a teenager in high school. So I was like, I wanted to be a sports writer, particularly wanted to write about the NBA. And I had my own uh, NBA and college basketball blog in high school. It was called Hoops Heads. When the pandemic came, I was doing freelance sports journalism, and I had an opportunity to be a general assignment reporter full-time at Cleveland.com. And after that, yeah, I was on the Cleveland's Promise uh, team after being a, a GA reporter. I want to learn a little bit more about this project. What were the goals of Cleveland's Promise? What were you hoping to show or address? The goal was to show 
uh, the different challenges that, you know, in Cleveland Metropolitan School District, uh, Cleveland school um, teachers and staff and students experience because Cleveland is one of the poorest uh, big cities in the nation. And what I think really I was able to help out, you know, show was the commitment to social emotional learning uh, within Cleveland schools. And I think that that was one of the main tenets that Cleveland's Promise show was that, you know, teachers and staff were trying their best to help students, not just academically, but also develop socially and emotionally as well. The Cleveland Metropolitan School District, they have something called family support specialists where different workers almost function like social workers and they help out families in the community with different needs, whether it be helping them with a utility bill, helping them find food at like a food bank. So that wraparound support uh, is so important in Cleveland. And that was something uh, that the project helped shed light on as well. When you think back about your time working on the Cleveland's Promise Project, were there particular students that inspired you to make the leap into teaching yourself? You know, a lot of them inspired me, but I had a few that I really had some strong connections with just every day, like looked forward to working with them, really resilient children. You know, a lot of the students there may not have the highest self-esteem. And that's kind of why I want to, you know, be in education and be in this work because, you know, students need someone who is going to believe in them. Uh, students need someone who's going to, you know, help them and, and nurture them. So that's really one of my main goals and main reasons for wanting to become a teacher. That's kind of personal too with me because back when I was a student, like I was bullied a lot and I didn't feel like I had like maybe a teacher that I could turn to. So I want to, you know, be able to be that person. Do you remember any specific teachers who made a difference in your life? My sixth grade teacher, like Mr. Somerville, I mean, I didn't, you know, really recognize the value of it at the time, but he would call us by our last names, like an honorific. So he would say like Mr. So-and-so or, or Miss So-and-so like for, for ourselves, like when he addressed us. And, you know, like when you're a kid, you don't really think about that too much, but like I see why he did it uh, now as an adult. And I just think that he really tried to create like positive relationships with us. And he was also, you know, one of the only black male teachers that I've had. So that was really awesome to see as well. And that's something I'm looking forward to, to being a black male teacher and being a, a positive role model. Yeah, I want to talk about those demographics a bit. According to the National Teacher and Principal Survey data, black male teachers make up fewer than 2% of teachers in this country. So I want to ask you, how big of a difference do you think it would make in school systems and in individual classrooms if there were more black men teaching? Yeah, there definitely would be a difference just because students need to see themselves. You know, students need to have someone to look up to that, that looks like them having that positive uh, role model, you know, helping guide them in any way that I can. That's something that I really am excited about and, and looking forward to. What does it mean for you to stay in Cleveland as a teacher? It means a lot. Yeah, because I, I grew up around the area. I love the land, uh, love the 216. And it's just awesome to be here and continue to, you know, make change, you know, in the city because, you know, we're kind of counted out 
at times, but we're really doing some great things in Cleveland. So it's really going to be a great time. Cameron Fields, making the change from reporting to teaching. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck. Thank you, Wanda, so much for having me. It was awesome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. From BritBox, with Season 2 of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, clear tonight. Temperatures down into the 40s. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 70s. We could see some showers tomorrow night, but sunny on Thursday and Friday. Temperatures both days in the upper 60s. It will be cooler on the Cape, though. It is 68 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis reportedly will make it official tomorrow that he will run for president in 2024. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, how a fourth grade teacher in Uvalde, Texas, will remember those killed in the mass shooting there one year ago tomorrow. I just want them to be honored and in a positive light and not remembered just for being like a mass shooting victim. Also this hour, long COVID and long-term federal disability, plus why people feel more confident about their own finances rather than the larger economy. Marketplace will have that and all the day's business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. White House and congressional negotiators are still apart on the terms for lifting the nation's debt ceiling. The two sides have been meeting trying to resolve their ongoing dispute. NPR's Claudio Gonzalez reports House Republicans emerged from a closed-door meeting with Speaker Kevin McCarthy today pessimistic about the state of the talks. Despite expressing optimism after his most recent meeting with President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reiterated that nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to in the ongoing talks. A key Republican negotiator, Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves, has concerns about the negotiations. We're not going to be able to make this deal. We're not going to be able to move forward. 
They're, they're continuing to try to continue the same trajectory of overspending, overtaxing, and forcing the next generation a debt that absolutely they cannot afford and certainly didn't create. But the White House argues that Republicans want to install extreme spending cuts that will hurt everyday Americans. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. A state judge in New York is cautioning former President Donald Trump to obey a protective order dictating how he can talk about discovery materials during an upcoming criminal trial stemming from hush money payments paid to a former adult movie actress. The order covers how Trump communicates publicly about emails, photographs, testimony, and other evidence gathered as legal proceedings move forward ahead of the trial date set for March 25th of next year. Trump made a video appearance in the New York courtroom. The trial, which would fall in the heart of the presidential primary season. The Illinois Attorney General has released a report finding widespread clergy sexual abuse and cover-ups across that state. NPR's Jason DeRose reports. The report includes the names and details of 451 Catholic priests as well as religious brothers who abused at least 1,997 children in every Illinois diocese or archdiocese. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul says the number of abusive priests is much higher than the church had previously disclosed. Decades of Catholic leadership decisions and policies have allowed known child sex abusers to hide, often in plain sight. In response, the Archdiocese of Chicago put out a statement saying it has concerns the data are being presented in a way that could be misleading. And the church says the instances of abuse have dropped off dramatically in recent decades because of newer safeguards it's implemented. Jason DeRose, NPR News. And Teamsters members, a giant package shipper UPS to the list of those threatening to strike. The union representing 350,000 UPS workers announcing members will strike if there's no deal by the time the current contract expires July 31st. According to logistics experts, UPS handles about 24 million packages on an average day. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Point 32 Health is letting its customers know that some personal data were stolen in a ransomware attack between March 28th and April 17th. Affected customers were notified today. All are members or providers of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. The personal data stolen might include names, addresses, social security numbers, and medical information. Point 32 Health is the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim. The company said it's not aware of any misuse of data at this point. The Cambridge City Council appears close to reaching an agreement to share the names of police officers who are involved in use of force incidents. That includes the officers who were involved in this year's fatal shooting of college student Syed Faisal. Cambridge City Councilor Quinton Zondervan proposed a policy that would require the names of those officers to be immediately released, but that didn't pass. The one that did requires the city to issue a status a status update next month. Very much a watered-down, whitewashed version of the original, which is often where we end up, but it, it does not satisfy the, the asking 
in any meaningful way. A police department spokesperson said the department is in the middle of an independent review and updating its policies. The legalization of recreational marijuana apparently is still alive in New Hampshire. Just last month, a bill to legalize pot failed, but New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who had opposed legalization, has shifted his support. A House committee attached a new marijuana legalization bill to another proposal. It would give regulatory control of cannabis to the state's Liquor Commission. New Hampshire is the only New England state that does not allow legalized recreational marijuana use. The Celtics season is on the line tonight when they take on the Miami Heat in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Seas trail the Heat three games to none. In that best-of-seven series, WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. Tonight's game in Miami could be the end for the Celtics, who lost by 26 points on Sunday night. Even if Boston wins tonight, they'll have a tough task ahead of them. No NBA team has ever won a seven-game series after trailing 3-0, though it has been done in other sports. The Boston Red Sox did it in 2004. The Celtics are expected to be at full strength tonight, with no players sick or hurt as they look to extend their season. The winner of this series will play the Denver Nuggets for the NBA championship. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. And our forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the 40s, sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 70s. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This week marks the end of the school year in Uvalde, Texas, and tomorrow marks one year since the deadly mass shooting that changed the community forever. A gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School, devastating families and thrusting survivors into grief and uncertainty. I wasn't sure I was going to come back as a teacher. That's Nicole Ogburn, who helped her students escape Robb Elementary through a bullet-shattered window. She knew some of the children who were killed, and she was very close with the teachers killed as well, Irma Garcia and Eva Mireles. She ultimately did decide to return as a teacher at a repurposed school campus, newly dubbed Uvalde Elementary. I spoke with her in her classroom last August, a week before the school year began. My first thing this year, it's really sad, is I usually look for cutesy stuff for my classroom. My first thing was safety stuff for my classroom. I spoke with Nicole Ogburn again today as she reflected on how she, her students, and her colleagues have gotten through this year. Nicole, I've been thinking about you and your students a lot over the course of this year. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. It's been a like a roller coaster this year of ups and downs. There's good days and seems like sometimes there's a lot more bad days for myself and my other friends that I teach with and and some of the kids, not all of the kids, um, but some of them. What's made it hard for some of the kids that are in your classroom? Having to start back up with like the drills, lockdown, secure. We had hazard drills this year. And um, sometimes those kids just, that's a trigger for them. And then of course we did have a couple of actual, not lockdowns luckily, but secure in place because of chases that would happen through town. And those really caught the kids off guard. How did you help people stay calm in those moments? I, it was hard because I was trying to keep myself calm a couple of times, but, you know, just kept 
reassuring them we're safer than we've ever been. One of the other things you also told us when we were in your classroom in August was about some of the new items that you'd brought for your classroom, like curtains to block the windows from outside view, a tool to help block the door in case of some sort of an intrusion or danger. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment this year where you felt like you needed to use those tools? We did have a curtain on the door, the window, to the door that comes into my classroom. And I used it a couple of times with the secure drills just because I didn't want the kids to see like something like that kind of made them a little more anxious. But what went through my mind this year a lot was, okay, even though I have these things, what can I use to like bear even like more like push up against the door? A lot of that stuff went through my head all year long. Okay, if this happens or if that happens, what what can we do just to maybe give us a little more time if something was to happen? It's now been a year. What is Uvalde like now? How did the shooting and everything that's happened since, how did it change your community? It changed us a lot. Um, I was born and raised here, and I always thought we were a pretty tight-knit community. Then all of a sudden, it just kind of things happened and there was lots of controversy in town. And in my mind, I'm like, something positive has to come out of this, something. When you talk about wanting something positive to come from this horrific tragedy, do you have an idea of what that might look like for you? I'm not sure what it looks like. I just think, I mean, like I want the children and I want Evan Irma to be honored in a way that would make them proud. And I just want them to be honored and and remembered for the good things and not remembered just for being like a mass shooting victim. Since the shooting that day, there have unfortunately been countless more at outlet malls, banks, birthday parties, other schools, and it's it's heartbreaking. But how do you handle that? What is it like for you hearing reports of more shootings across this country, more people who lose their lives and have their communities torn apart? It's almost like you relive it every time another one happens. And I feel anxious. I feel angry at times, like, why is this still happening? And that's sad that we can't just go somewhere publicly and be safe because you never know what might happen. Yeah. I have to imagine that for a lot of teachers and school staff and even kids who went back into schools just like you did, that they spend a lot of time thinking and worrying about a tragedy like this happening to them. What would you say to them, people who fear this kind of violence coming to their community, to their classroom? Um, one of the things I've, I've tried to say is we... Yes, we need to be cautious about your surroundings and everything around you, but also don't let the fear of something 
like this happening keep you from from doing the things that you love to do and that you enjoy to do. Um, the one thing I've constantly told my kids and I even have to tell myself <laughs> is I can't live in the fear of this happening again because it's going to keep me and my kids from doing things that they love and accomplish things that they should be accomplishing right now in life and not let it hold you back. That's Nicole Ogburn, fourth grade teacher at Uvalde Elementary. Thank you so much for talking to us and take care. Thank you. People affected by long COVID have to endure more than just physical suffering. Many are also hurting economically. They've lost their jobs and now rely on disability checks to survive. And getting long-term disability approved for long COVID can be a major challenge for some patients. For member station KQED in San Francisco, Keith Mizuguchi reports. Chris Pham, who's 35, is at home living with his parents in Arizona. The former head of sales is still feeling the effects of his COVID-19 infection. Pham contracted the virus back in March of 2020, right as the city of San Francisco was shutting down. He thought it would be something that came and went, but his symptoms kept getting worse. I was going to go for a short five-mile run, and after mile one, I can remember really thinking, wow, something is totally wrong with my body. And I broke into a cold sweat. I just couldn't run anymore. Despite his condition, Pham tried to go back to work immediately. I found it almost impossible. I was passing out in the middle of the day after one or, or two meetings. Like so many working age Americans with long COVID, Pham was forced to take leave from his job. And eventually, his employer let him go. After his short-term disability ran out, he filed a claim for long-term disability benefits. And that's where the problems began. The disability company would often come back and say, it needs review. And this happened every single month. So they would only approve the benefit one month at a time. So I had, I had no certainty on how to plan you know, it's basically just chasing down my benefits the whole time. His insurer, Guardian, terminated his benefits last year. Guardian did not respond to numerous requests for comment. Consultant Linda Bergthold, who works with employers to develop health care benefit programs, says part of the problem is that insurers don't have a definitive definition of long COVID, and there are no treatments that have been approved for long COVID patients. It's very frustrating for everybody. It's frustrating for patients, for doctors. And insurance companies will be conservative about it. They will say, we're not paying until we figure this out. While there's still a great deal of uncertainty about long COVID, Dr. David Petrino with Mount Sinai in New York says that shouldn't be an excuse for insurers to end benefits for patients. Petrino is working with thousands of long COVID patients at his recovery clinic. These individuals need to be held accountable for withdrawing support from people who deserve benefits and deserve adequate levels of care. Please let us stop asking sick people to prove to us that they're sick. For Chris Pham, without any benefits coming in and not being able to work, he was forced to move back in with his parents. You know, if I didn't have the support of my family, I'd be out on the streets. And they don't care. FAM's attorney, Cassie Springer-Ieni, who specializes in disability claims, says his story is not unique. People take loans and people take loans from family. A lot of my clients wind up selling their house, moving somewhere else. I've had two clients just in the last year 
have to give up living in the Bay Area because of their disabilities, because they can't live off of an unreliable source of income. Pham eventually appealed the decision, and after being without benefits for seven months, his appeal was finally granted, meaning his long-term benefits were restored earlier this year. But he's still not satisfied with his experience navigating the insurance system. It's rife with both inconsistencies, but also just really poorly executed and designed. And whether that's on purpose or just how the system is, it'll lead to a lot of people feeling discouraged and not having the resources to get what is rightfully theirs. While FAM feels fortunate, so many others with long COVID across the country are still waiting for their appeals to be heard or resolved and wondering if they'll ever get the help they need. For NPR News, I'm Keith Mizuguchi in San Francisco. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, our Bill of the Month series. Today, we're going to hear the story of a man who visited the U.S. for his daughter's wedding, and he left with a $42,000 medical bill. The time is 19 minutes past 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. On Wall Street, major stock indexes finished lower today, with the Dow falling more than 200 points. In Massachusetts financial news, the state Senate has rejected a proposal that would have authorized online lottery sales in Massachusetts. The House previously approved the so-called iLottery plan. House Democrats estimate that it would generate $200 million in revenue. Marketplace will have all the day's business news beginning at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage this Thursday through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. In our forecast, mostly clear tonight. Temperatures in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the 70s. There could be some scattered showers tomorrow night, but after that, sunny right through the holiday weekend. Thursday and Friday, temperatures in the upper 60s in greater Boston. A bit cooler on the Cape, and it gets warmer through the holiday weekend. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Each month, we investigate someone's medical bill to spotlight gaps in the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor of our partner, KFF Health News, and she's here with our May Bill of the Month. Welcome. Good to be back. All right, so tell us, who are we meeting today? Uh, today, the patient is Jay Comfort, who is an American expatriate living in Switzerland, where he has Swiss health insurance. and. By the way, the Swiss healthcare system is widely admired. 
He traveled back to the U.S. last year for his daughter's wedding and ended up in an American emergency room. Um, his story illustrates the huge difference in international health care prices. And it's a reminder that when people visit the U.S., having good health insurance back home may not be enough to protect you from a pricey American medical bill. Okay, reporter Sarah Jane Tribble spoke with Jay. Jay Comfort was thousands of miles from home, having pizza with his brother and wife in Pennsylvania, when he felt pain in his abdomen. The 66-year-old says he tried to avoid going to the ER, so he went to get some sleep in his hotel room. And about an hour later, I was in excruciating pain, and I tried to gut it out for three hours because, um, you know, the, the insurance situation. Jay's health insurance is from Switzerland. When he finally arrived at the ER, he remembers the hospital staff taking his insurance card. You know, it was just like, you're in, you said you had insurance, we took a copy of your card, we're going to give you the treatment we think you need. He was taken to surgery where doctors removed his inflamed appendix. They also sent tissue for testing to check for cancer. He spent a few hours in a recovery room and was released. In all, Jay says he was at the hospital about 14 hours. When he left, he felt good enough to go to his daughter's wedding the next weekend and fly back to Switzerland after. The emergency appendectomy happened in June. It took six months for the bill to show up. Finally, after Jay's nudging, he got the bill in December. The price tag was just over $42,000. I don't want to try to walk away saying I don't owe you anything. Come on, that's not right. We're moral people, you know. But if you're going to try to gouge me, you know, like this, his Swiss insurance company, they don't have contracts or negotiate prices with hospitals outside of Switzerland, but ultimately said they would reimburse Jay for the appendectomy, plus the cost of some scans and laboratory work. He'll get about $8,000. That's the amount the care would have cost in Switzerland, plus double because it was an emergency abroad. Jay is still on the hook to pay the $34,000 difference. If you're a person traveling in the United States, and you, you, had, you had better be sure and confirm that your medical care is sufficient to cover uh, U.S. Uh, hospital care. It's so expensive and it's so outrageous. Jay is retired and living on a fixed income. My income is fixed. I'm not young. How many years is it going to take me to recoup from this? A spokesperson for the health system says it has a robust financial assistance program for patients unable to pay. They also said, to our knowledge, Jay Comfort had not applied for financial assistance and that his total bill aligns with their standard charges. Jay says he's still hoping the hospital will negotiate with him to cut the price of his bill. That was Sarah Jane Tribble with our partner, KFF Health News. And we are back now with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. And I have to say, it sounds like Jay is in a really tough spot left on his own to negotiate with this hospital. It's a really tough spot. Unfortunately for him, Jay fell ill in Pennsylvania, where one huge hospital system, UPMC, has expanded its reach throughout the state and is now the largest provider of care in many places. For example, two major hospitals in Williamsport are both owned by UPMC. Now, that kind of market control can allow for prices to get particularly high. Anyway, when you have a hot appendix, it's not a good time to shop around or drive 50 miles for a cheaper surgeon, right? And without much competition, hospitals can essentially charge whatever they want if a patient like Jay is paying out of pocket. 
I mean, even if he manages to negotiate the price down a bit, it's still tens of thousands of dollars and multiples of what his Swiss insurer would consider reasonable. As you mentioned, he had Swiss health insurance. Doesn't your health insurance coverage cover you wherever you go? Generally, yes, but how much they'll pay and how much financial protection you have varies a lot. I mean, costs for medical care in the U.S. can be two to three times the rate in other developed countries, so other insurers from other countries may balk at paying U.S. rates. UPMC says the health system billed Jay its standard charges for treatment tied to the appendectomy, plus those diagnostic tests. But later, when Jay got the bill from his stay in Pennsylvania, he realized it was much, much higher than what the care would cost in Switzerland and much, much higher than what his Swiss insurance would reimburse. I mean, I imagine that had to have been a really shocking bill and pretty frustrating for Jay. What can a person do in this kind of situation? Uh, Well, foreign residents, students, contract workers, visiting expats should consider buying travel insurance before coming to the U.S., even if they have good insurance in their home country. That's one thing Jay could have done. But there's another thing Americans his age, those 65 and over, should know who are going in the other direction, traveling overseas. Medicare generally does not cover them if they're outside the U.S. But, you know, the good thing is in most other countries, the bills won't be so enormous. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you have a confusing medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's Shots blog and tell us all about it. NBA star Carmelo Anthony announced Monday that he's retiring in a video posted to Twitter. My purpose was strong, my communities, the cities I represented with pride, and the fans that supported me along the way. I am forever grateful for those people and places. Over 19 seasons, Anthony made a name for himself with his grace, athleticism, and bullying physical prowess, says the athletics Mike Vorkanoff. He had a great pull-up jumper that he could use from anywhere on the court. He could go into the post, and the jab step was just kind of a signature Carmelo Anthony move where he would uh, keep the ball, keep a pivot foot, and jab his other foot out to try to create space. He played for several teams over the course of his career, but Vorkanoff says many fans will most fondly remember his days playing for the New York Knicks, where he led the team to its most successful season in decades. In a 2014 game, he even made a little history. 37 first half points! While playing for the Knicks, Anthony set a record for the most points ever scored at Madison Square Garden. That one night really encapsulated the full Carmelo Anthony experience. He scored 62 points, but he had zero assists, right, which could be emblematic of the style of play for him, which was much more individualistic uh, than it was team-oriented, which was a criticism of his. Anthony never secured an NBA championship title, but he made up for that in Olympic wins. Anthony retires with three gold medals, more than any other men's basketball player. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. If you want to stay updated on upcoming BUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get a first crack at tickets, sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. In our forecast, mostly clear skies tonight. Temperatures down in the 40s. Tomorrow should be sunny with highs in the 70s, although we should see some showers in some spots tomorrow night. Sunshine returns Thursday and Friday with temperatures in the upper 60s. It will be a bit cooler on the Cape. Mostly sunny Saturday. Highs getting into the mid-70s. And for Sunday, sunshine. Highs near 80 degrees. More sunshine Memorial Day Monday with highs in the upper 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com.